around 60 years old, had no child. And those days, to be entering those latter years of life with no children was a very scary thing, especially economically. Who would provide for him in his old age, to take care of him, to ensure that he doesn't starve to death when he is no longer able to work? And also in this kind of honor-shame culture, right, who would carry on the family legacy? Who would carry on the family name? Who would carry on the family honor? We can only just imagine how many thousands of prayers have been lifted between him and Elizabeth, imploring God for a child, probably often weeping in one another's arms. So here he is, right, in the temple. If there's a place to pray, he's there. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. But had he given up on that age-old prayer? Have you ever prayed something so many times, year after year, that you simply despair at the thought of praying for it? Or even when you feel like you have officially prayed it out, and there's nothing left to be said full of doubts, after years of unanswered prayer, you still find yourself in a sort of empty routine of prayer with some feeling of necessity to do so. But even if an angel were to appear in front of you right now and say, hey, that prayer you've been praying for decades, it's going to come true, you will still be taken back in disbelief because you've doubted for just so long. But as Zechariah found himself in the inner courts of the temple, just feet away from the massive five-inch thick, around 60-foot-high veil that divided between God's presence, the Holy of Holies, and the Ark of the Covenant, we can conjecture here, that he thought his location was probably important enough to maybe give it one last shot. We see some evidence of this. Maybe an impossible prayer, right? Since his wife is so far from child-rearing years, but here he is. And would he get a miracle answer? Now, we also know from the angel's words that it wasn't just a prayer probably for this son. He was probably like Daniel, as you see in chapter 9 of Daniel, praying for Israel praying for this consummation they were looking for as they were press, hard-pressed beneath the Romans. Not only was he praying for his own family deliverance with a son, he was, I'm sure, as we see in Gabriel's response here, he was praying for his people Israel as well. His oppression just reminded him of the oppression of his nation. It's like, God, deliver me, but God, please deliver this nation. And as he was praying to his right, an angel appears. And to feel the magnitude of this, remember, it's been four hundred years since any sort of vision has occurred, any sort of angelic visitation, anything audible from God, any prophetic announcement, nothing. But suddenly he finds himself talking with an angel. He was troubled and full of fear, as the text says, of course, right? If you were sitting and an angel pops up and starts talking to you, I would be freaked out as well. We don't realize that very few people in Scripture ever saw an angel, much less spoke with one. Any of us will be scared, especially after so many years and centuries of silence from God. But let's revisit the words from the angel. The angel said to Zechariah, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and to the disobedient, to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a prepared people." To begin with, what amazes me about this pronouncement is how it begins. He says, don't be afraid. God has heard your prayer. Your wife will bear a son. 
and God wants you to call him John, but something he says is this, you will have joy and gladness at his birth. It is apparent that God, through his pronouncement, has something in mind on the world scale. Something they've been expecting for centuries. Yet in every single circumstance, as God is working on such a scale, he always has in mind the seemingly ordinary individuals, their stories and their burdens and their longings in his focus as he uses them to bring about his good purposes. He isn't so busy on the global scale that he's forgotten just how much a 60-year-old man who could never have children was mourning in despair over his childless situation. This child is important, but first, Zechariah, you are going to be full of joy and gladness. God does work on a universal scale, but he is not too big to forget about your very circumstances, even on this day. And no prayer lifted up even for decades should ever be deemed hopeless as to simply quit and give up on. And in fact, in this, this is what particularly makes Advent so special. It was kind of the culmination of prophecies and prayers given over the course of about two millennia. If you want to talk about patient, longing, and waiting. So this child will be especially devoted to God. He will not drink wine or strong drink, reminiscent of a potentially lifelong Nazarite vows you see in Numbers chapter 6. Also, um, in two other women who couldn't bear children, there was the same thing said of Samson and of Samuel. So there's a, a connection point we have here with his son coming to other prophets of old. The angel says that the Holy Spirit will fill this boy even while he is still in the womb. Unprecedented. And he will have a prophetic role in the turning of the hearts of Israel back to God in order that they may prepare the way for someone much greater than himself. That this child has a role to kind of make way and to carve out a path for another child that will supersede himself. The Lord is coming. Now it's hard to imagine what Zechariah uh, was thinking at this point. I don't know if you've ever been in positions where you have to walk into a room and deliver news to somebody, whether it be exciting or not so exciting, but, you know, you're aware of just the reception is going to be like a, like a blow, like a, whoa, what did you just tell me? So you want to speak slowly and kind of like help him get the whole context, but the angel kind of just like drops this on him. It's just like looking at him. I wonder like what Zechariah was like, whoa, that was a lot? Um, let me, can I have a minute to process this? Like, this is a lot going on for Zechariah, right? Um, but here's what happens, right? Um, he, he dumps it on him. Zechariah sits there, and he comes up with a natural question that I think any one of us would ask that initially rise in his heart. Abraham asked the same question, and he was told the very same thing from God. He said this, how shall I know it? Asked Zechariah to the angel. I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. Josephus mentions this in his uh, history books that this means in that you know, concepts, that phrase means past 60. So it's a very human question. My wife will have a baby far past child-rearing years. Well, how will this be? But what he really is asking for, if you read closely, is a sign. And again, in the lights of Moses, Gideon, and many others, this isn't the first time somebody has asked God for a sign, right? For a stamp of kind of proof of his words. So in all probability, Zechariah, as he mentioned, was praying the two prayers before the altar, right? For his people Israel, right? A, a prayer of hope, longing for God's consummation to come. And secondly, um, it, it appears, as the angel responds, that he was praying for his childless 
states. And the response given to the angel is actually one response given as an answer to both prayers that find themselves in the same response. His coming in child is an answer for his other prayer because the salvation of his people is coming and his son will carve the way for that salvation. But Zechariah is doubting these things. But how could a prayer be uttered in one minute only to be apparently doubted the very next minute, even if an angel is standing before you? Because he's a human being. And I think all of us at times can reduce our religion to one of mere motions, where we can say, yes, in my mind, God, I know that you can do all things. I know the Bible verses. I know you split the Red Sea. I know you sent the plagues on Egypt. I know you've, you've given barren women children in Scripture like Sarah and Rebecca and Hannah and the like. Yet, those were centuries ago, and this is me, right? How true are those stories? I don't know. I wasn't there. I read about them. I know about them. They're passed down to me. I know God can, but how? How for me? I'm, I'm just me. How can God do this for me? Those, that was Abraham. That was Moses. I'm just a one of 10 to 20,000 Levites sitting here. How, how is this going to happen to me? James said that those who were filled with doubt are like winds driven and tossed by the sea. I think we see some of that in Zechariah's response as he's driven and tossed about by his doubts. His question revealing his doubts brought about a stern response from the angel. And now he should be trembling because this is no ordinary angel. Angel, This he identifies himself now as a mighty Gabriel who stood before Daniel, if you read in the book of Daniel. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. If you heard those words, you'd probably shudder like, whoa, you're Gabriel. Like, I know about you, like you're Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Behold, you will be silent and able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they wondered at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. His prayer for a sign was answered. The silence of God would continue just for a few more months with Zechariah's silence. It wasn't time yet for this word to go out, and Zechariah had something to learn in this process. So now he couldn't speak. As he stayed in the temple for longer and longer, the people were kind of getting a little nervous, right? And suddenly he bursts out of the temple. He can't communicate what's going on. He's trying to sign, and people realize something big just happened in there. But we don't actually know because he can't tell us. The silence of four centuries has been broken, but nobody quite knows yet what, 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 what the message was, right? And it continues on. Elizabeth hears about it. And she, in miraculous fashion, conceives. But what does she do? She also is silent about her pregnancy. She actually hides, apparently taking note from Zechariah's silence. I guess surmising it wasn't quite time to announce things yet. They must wait on God. After those days, Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden. For thus the Lord has done to me when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Now at this part of our story, we are interrupted with a story of Mary and her visit from Gabriel, which we'll hear about in detail in the coming sermons. But after this interjection of Mary's story, we are moved back to the back end of our sermon with a concluding of Zechariah and Elizabeth's story, the birth of this new miracle son named John, when the prophetic silence is officially broken and it goes public. And I think then we learn of the true nature of his doubts. The baby was born. And by now the town had heard the news. 
as was tradition. Everyone came for the circumcision, the naming of the child. Usually is what would be tradition as well, especially in this unusual case of a child born so late in life and being the only son, he would most assuredly be named after his father who was also named after his father. In this way, the family honor and legacy would continue. And in a way, the fathers of the family continue their heritage through this new son. But to everyone's utter shock, Elizabeth, standing before her neighbors, unconventionally responds when they ask what his name will be. Will it be Zechariah? What does she say? No, he will be called John. Now we hear this and we think, big deal. What's the big deal, right? He's not a junior. Who cares, right? But for these, the honor of family was at stake. And in the honor-shame culture, it would have been shameful to raise this boy without his father's name, especially as the only son, as the firstborn. People will look at him with a skeptical eye. Why did your parents give you that name? Do they not care for you? Like, it will also be shaming for Zechariah and his father, and their legacy would officially be coming to an end. To understand this is to know that the whole scenario in their culture, it wasn't exactly ideal for his family and their flourishing. No one understands exactly what is happening quite yet. And now we come back to Zechariah. We can guess that at some point Zechariah wrote down all that happened to Elizabeth, we're not quite sure, and told her that the angel should be called, the, the angel said that the boy should be called John. It seems Elizabeth has already accepted this and potential consequences that comes with embracing God's will for this new boy. Now keep in mind that not only the family's legacy would not be carried on, but it seems that God has already planned out the child's trade and his future. The child is going to be a prophet like Elijah. And if you're an Israelite in those days and you're aware of a prophet's life, you would aware that a prophet's life is often in danger and they're not known for living very long before they are killed. Now, we don't have a lot of information concerning what exactly Zechariah was feeling, but apparently at this moment, when the naming of his son was, was brought to him to confirm or not affirm the words of Elizabeth, he lingered. Everyone wondered in, in amazement, staring at Zechariah, what would his response be? Apparently, they had a reason to believe that it would not be the same. When you read, we'll read this in a minute here. When you read Luke's narrative in the back end of chapter 1 here, there is clearly tension between him and Elizabeth in the crowd. Have you ever felt yourself on the precipice of accepting the will of God, not knowing what it means, not knowing the future, but even to the potential harm of yourself, you are faced with embracing it or kicking against it? No one who in long-term fashion kicked against God's pursuit of his will for their life ever succeeded. We can sense that Zechariah's battle of doubt as to his own path here wasn't exactly over. He could just say, no, it's Zechariah, the kid's Zechariah, and I'm doing what I want with my son, and it will not be what God had told this angel. I am going to bring him into the family, give him the family's legacy and honor. I'm going to do my own thing here. No, Elizabeth, his name is Zechariah. He could do that. What's amazing about this is how God does that for us. He, he is sovereign. He, he knows everything that will happen before the word is on our tongue. He knows that the Lord says, David, right? But he still gives us this opportunity of response to conform to his will. And that's what he is doing with Zechariah, right? All eyes are on him in a quiet way. Zechariah, if you know the whole context of the story, he was being confronted by the coming Christ. 
as the coming of Jesus is why his new son was given to him. The coming of Christ is the new role that his son would have, is why the name of his son was come. And so indirectly, even as we all are, as Advent does, Zechariah in the silent moment is being confronted by the coming of Christ himself. And what is he going to do in response? The entirety of the Advent season is about the theme of coming. That's the word, what, what, what the word means. And when God came to this earth, just as we see in this passage, there is sort of a natural confrontation that happens in our lives where the dark places of our heart are suddenly exposed as if a flashlight had been shown on you while you were in a dark room. You don't quite know what to do. You don't quite know how to respond, but you simply feel naked in light of God's presence. This narrative we find at the beginning of the pages of Luke shows us that when God confronts you, your heart will be exposed. What may you potentially lose in light of embracing Jesus in his fullness by his Holy Spirit? What may change? What may be added? What may be taken away? What honor may you lose? What potential misunderstandings from your family and friends may be brought to you? What could he ask you to give up? For Zechariah, he knew that his precious miracle son would probably have a tumultuous life. And he knew his family may not benefit much from it. Zechariah was faced with the decision to give his newborn son over to God's will at whatever the costs. In Scripture, we, now we have God's will. It's revealed to us. And at what cost are we willing to embrace it? At what length? At what expense? As the narrative continues, Zechariah, as all eyes are on him, he asks for a writing tablet. And here you can catch the sense, if you read, we'll read this in a moment, with Luke's expert storytelling, that there is a change happening in Zechariah. There's a potential alteration coming. Zechariah, possibly now a broken man under the weight of his own doubts, knowing that this child must fully be given over to God and to be given over to him in his mercy and in his sovereign plans, knowing the stories of the prophets of old who had been martyred for such a duty, knowing that this child was going to have an especially important role in preparing the way of the Lord, knowing all of the old prophecies, the silence of God for centuries, knowing that by providence, his own family, himself, and now this child has some crucial role to play that will probably change the course of their own life. Before this great and awesome day of the Lord comes, he grabs a tablet, he bends his will, and with a pen, he writes this. And here we pick up in Luke chapter 1, verse 63. Zechariah writes, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately, his mouth was opened, his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all the neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the surrounding hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up on their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was upon him. Fear is mentioned once again. For everyone senses that God is actually working at that moment right now. His tongue is loosened. He breaks forth into miraculous blessing of God. Word spread quickly to the surrounding communities. Everyone's curiosity increased concerning this newborn son to the couple. And what is going to happen to him? Then in keeping tune to Luke's writing, yet another unexpected event occurs. Zechariah, he finds himself among the prophets. As the Holy Spirit fills him, and he begins an elaborate prophecy concerning this child, and also the child that is to come, and its result for his people in Israel. Beginning at verse 67, chapter 1 of Luke, the word of the Lord. 
And after his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to his father Abraham. To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. You can imagine him holding up his son at this point in verse 76. And you, and looking at this new son, and you, child, you will be called prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The child grew and became strong in the spirit. And then he got a little weird because he moved to the wilderness and lived there, all right? He lived in the desert. This kid became an interesting character if you read his story, right? There's a new day dawning, and his child will usher in God's pathways, in the season of Advent, we spent an entire month revisiting this new day that began 2,000 years ago that still continues today and even now is still waiting for its fulfillment. After this prayer, Zechariah vanishes from the pages of history. But later, some 30 years or so, when John's ministry of preparation was nearing completion and many of his own disciples were now leaving him to follow Christ, some people came to him and questioned John. John became known as a great prophet in his life, perhaps even exceeding Jesus's in the early years in many ways in Israel. Most looked to him as a prophet, just like Elijah, just like Jeremiah. People would travel from all over to hear this man speak, to confess their sins and be baptized by him. Even Jesus said that no one born of woman was greater than John the Baptist. Yet Jesus's role seemed to now be eclipsing John's, as was foretold. As John became aware that his time was coming to a close, he uttered to his questioners something concerning himself and his future. And what became some of the most famous words of all in Scripture, he responded to his questioners, He, that is Christ, must increase and I must decrease. Like Zechariah, like Mary, like Elizabeth, like the wise men, like Peter and James and John and Paul and a multitude of others, John was later confronted with Jesus, just like his father was, with the exact choice that you and I are confronted with right now. What would he make most important? His own life or God's will? Will he deny himself and place Christ first in all of his life, even if it means losing his own ministry? Jesus' own life was exemplary in that he fully submitted himself to his Father. He oriented his life not towards himself, but towards God and others. It is precisely the denial that is so difficult for all of us because our egos are always lurking beneath the surface, making efforts to connect all of our reality to our self, all of our thoughts, all of our actions, all of our desires linked to make you the center. And it holds and clings tightly to things that we simply do not want to give up. And we find other pearls of great value that we bow down and worship and bury rather than Christ. Because we imagine that if we had the freedom to indulge in what we want to do and in our own will and got the things that we desired, that we would be happy, that we would be content, and that we would flourish. 
It's that very thing that brought the curse in this world in Eden. That's what, that's what Adam and Eve did. That's what Jesus came to reverse. John the Baptist later in Matthew chapter 3, one of my favorite passages, he, he speaks to Christ like this. He's speaking to his audience. He says, there's an axe, and it's laid to the root of the tree. And when that axe starts swinging, and the tree is cut down, the tree that's not bearing fruit will be cut down, and the tree that bears fruit will be restored and saved. And there is, I'm paraphrasing, there is no other acts after this. This is it. The one coming after him is mightier than him, and there is no other revelation. This is it, Israel. If you accept him and you bear fruit and you know God, you find life. If you, dis, if you reject him and you push him away, you will be cut down. That is the Christ who confronts us this Advent season. But Paul talked about it this way. This is no fear-based only thing that we're scared of hell, so we need to get hell insurance in Christ. No, Paul says this. When you find Christ, you find life. He says to live is Christ. When you find Christ and he rules over your life and you deny all things for him, he says, I find Christ and then to live is Christ. And if I die because I love Christ, I will gain even more. What treasures are you clinging to that stands between you and Christ? You must think about these things as the Advent story is once again confronting us today. What treasures are you clinging to? What things like Zechariah were you just not wanting to fully give and release over to God? As we close today, know that the Holy Spirit is here to help you. If you're sitting on secretive sins, if you're sitting on anything that you're just squashing down and trying to just hold on to with all of your mind, a great test of what something like that would be. If there's something in your life that it's removed and you get you, you would get super irritable, you're like, no, there's, there's probably a problem there, right? That's just one basic little litmus test for you. But know that there's grace and mercy, that the story of Advent finds itself leading to Christ on the cross and his resurrection. And the good news message, it says that he is a gracious and loving God who has swept away your sins and defeated them all through his resurrection. And even now he offers you the hand of salvation, the hand of forgiveness, the hand of cleansing to restore you back to himself so he can then, by his grace, utter the same words as Paul uttered, to live as Christ. And so let me pray. Jesus, I pray that we can learn to deny ourselves, that if there's doubting in our hearts, doubting that is due to uh, uh, treasures and idols that we have just hoarded in, that keep us from embracing whatever you have for us, Lord, that keeps us to embracing you before all else. Please, Jesus, show us what those things are. May we be known for our self-denial and for our love of you and for the outward expression of our love for you to be geared towards others. Help us never to act in our own interest, but to consider others as more important than ourselves. Thank you that you came. Lord, you are the end point. Lord, next time you come back, it's not going to be a, a gracious return. It's going to be one of judgment and one of fire and one of the fullness of restoration of this world. But now, Peter says, you delay in coming because you want us to come to you, to receive forgiveness, to receive grace. And so Jesus says, these stories confront us as Advent confronts us now. We thank you for your grace. 
We thank you that you can wipe away all of our sins, that you can restore us back into yourself even this day. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.